Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Mercedes Kirkel. Uh, Mercedes is a spiritual growth facilitator who brings forth messages from Mary Magdalene and other beings of light. Uh, and she was recommended to me by my friend Sandra Glickman, whom I interviewed um, near the very beginning of this whole show about three years ago. And uh, I often run into Sandra in the grocery store and places <laughs> like that. And so at one point she recommended Mercedes, and here we are. Now, um, it's funny because on this show I often refer to the fact that there are subtler levels of creation and even that there are beings dwelling on those subtle levels and that one, you know, with sufficient development or whatever could communicate with those beings and that there might be some value in doing that. Even though that's not the main focus of this show, that topic does sometimes come up. And yet when I actually encountered somebody who was doing that, so my, my kind of skepticism, you know, uh, started kicking in, as it did for you when you first started having those experiences. That's right. Uh, so what I was thinking was, you know, let's lay a foundation because I think it's probably natural and healthy to be skeptical, um, especially since not all the people, I think, who claim to be doing the sort of thing you're doing are actually doing it. Some might just have vivid imaginations. Um, you know, not everybody was Joan of Arc in a past life or whatever. <laughs> you know, this. And uh, so let's, let's lay a foundation. And, and in the context of this conversation, we'll, we'll discuss why what you're doing is relevant to somebody who would be interested in, you know, enlightenment or self-realization and, and might feel that, um, you know, channeling or subtle beings or any of that stuff is only a distraction, you know, that, that it might um, throw them off the path or just get them caught up in New Age woo-woo without having any ultimate value. Um, so we'll talk about those things and, and many others. <clears throat> so let's, uh, let's start from the beginning, Mercedes. Um, what would you like to just say about your own life and journey and, and so on, starting as early as you feel there's anything, anything significant to uh, recount? Well, my journey actually started at a very young age. Mm -hmm. um, my earliest memory of having spiritual experiences was when I was eight years old. But um, the one that most connects with this story, I think, is when I was 12, which is that um, I started to have visions come to me of having walked with Jesus in the desert. And to put this in context, my family was Jewish. I was living in a small Midwestern American town, and um, my family was not particularly religiously oriented. It was more of their background was Jewish, but we weren't actively involved in much of anything spiritual or religious. And I started having these visions. And in the visions, there were about 100 people who were following Jesus in the desert, and I was part of that group. There was an inner circle, and I wasn't part of the inner circle, but I was part of the larger gathering. And I never told anyone about these visions, because I didn't think anyone would understand. I didn't think my family would understand, and I didn't really know anyone outside my family to talk to. Would they come in dreams, or when you were just like riding your bicycle, or you know, sitting, <laughs> sitting quietly, or, or what? Actually, my strongest memory of this vision is one time when I was doing a, a family chore. I was cleaning one of the bathrooms, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and this vision came to me. Uh -huh. 
So I was awake, and it was sort of, you know, when I was in quiet time by myself. And I remember they came to me a number of times, the same vision. And it was pretty vivid? It wasn't just sort of a, a vague imagination? It was something quite vivid? Oh, yes, and it was something I knew was different. You know, mm. all children have imagination and that kind of thing, and this was different, and it stood out very mm. strongly for me. Mm-hmm. But eventually, it receded back into the background, and I more or less forgot about it. But I did go on from there to be very interested in religion. And in my early life, starting when I was 12 years old, I was very um, drawn to Hinduism and Eastern spirituality. I remember going to the public library in this small Midwestern town and taking up books on Hinduism. And at that time, the only books available were very scholarly texts. I couldn't understand a word of what they were saying. But it didn't stop me. I still tried. There was something so strong in me wanting to connect with this. And it wasn't until I went to college, and I actually was still fairly young. I was 16 when I went to college. And um, I started to meet people who were practicing Eastern, you know, Indian religions um, or paths of different sorts. And I was very drawn, experimented with lots of things, and I was a dismal failure at all of it. (laughs) I tried meditating, I tried chanting, I tried Zen Buddhism, I tried everything that I could get access to, and I just seemed like I wasn't cut out for it. Nothing worked. Yoga, I didn't have the discipline, couldn't get myself up in the morning. Nothing seemed to work. (laughs) Finally, I, um, but I I stayed with it. I was so persistent. Finally, I did connect with an American spiritual teacher, and uh, that teacher went by many different names, but the name that uh, he finally ended up with that, you know, he's known by today is Adi Da. Right. And, and I, that's where you met Sandra. She was with Adida. Yes. And Sanya Bonder. And, yeah. Right. That was my second spiritual teacher, and I, she mm. was connected to both of them. Mm. Right. And um, I was with Adida for 17 years. Um, was very, you know, very, very involved at the most central level mm-hmm. of doing. And this was a very spiritual, what I consider a very serious spiritual path that you know I was on at that point where it involved lots of meditation and um, all sorts of disciplines and my whole life being very very devoted and um, eventually I uh, moved into the second spiritual uh, group that I was with which was Samuel Bonder in the Waking Down community. Why did you leave Arida? I had no intention of leaving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I There were things that were going on that I wasn't quite aligned to, and I was aware of that. But I was still feeling that there was so much blessing, and I was growing so strongly that I was very uh, at peace with what was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was in a relationship with someone who felt like their uh, practice had plateaued and that they weren't growing. And this had been going on for a number of years. And... He was very frustrated, and he decided that he wanted to look for um, something to supplement his practice. And both of us had a number of friends who had formerly been in the Adida community and had started, um, you know, had, had left and gone with Samuel and were working with Samuel Bonder and were very excited about what was happening. And so, um, because, you know, we'd heard about him, about Samuel through our friends, my partner decided he would check out Samuel. And he started going to Samuel's groups and really felt very supported, really liked what was happening. 
And he kept saying to me, would you like to come? Would you like to come? And I said, no, I'm fine with you know what's happening with me, but I'm glad this is working for you. But after about six months, it started to become apparent to me that um, he was really uh, getting more and more committed to what was happening with Samuel. And I thought, you know, just for the sake of our relationship, I should go and check out and make a connection with the people there. So we started with a dinner, uh, and we had a dinner, dinner with Samuel and his partner, Linda, and um, one other woman that I had known who was working with Samuel, but I had known her previously from the Adida community. And I was very impressed. Um, Samuel, first of all, I was very impressed with this woman I had known from the previous community because she had changed so much. We had been very good friends, and I knew her well, and I could see how much she had changed, how strong she had become, and she had a lot of power and clarity, and I was really impressed. So that was the first thing that really spoke to me. Do I know her? Uh, her name is Rini Hansen. I huh. don't know if no, you know I her don't or know. not. I haven't interviewed her. No. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she, that was very powerful for me. And then at a certain point, Samuel said, well, would you like to talk about your spiritual practice and what's happening? And I thought, wonderful, I'd love to. Mm-hmm. So we started talking. I told him what was going on at that point in my life. And he said, would you like to hear my point of view on this? I was so impressed that he even asked. He was so respectful. Mm-hmm. And that really moved me. And I said, yes, I'd love to hear your point of view. And he talked to me and said things I'd never heard before. And I was very impressed. And I thought, this is interesting. I think, you know, this could be valuable. There's something here. And then at the end, as we were leaving, and it had been a very lovely dinner, he asked if I would like a hug. And I said, sure, I'd like to have a hug. And so I got a hug from him, and I recognized that there was spiritual transmission that happened, and that impressed me too. I was very familiar with spiritual transmission from Adi Da, who has had, he's not alive anymore, but when I was with him, I experienced very powerful spiritual transmission, so I knew what that was like. This was not as strong as that, but it was clear, and I felt it. And um, so I went home. The next morning I woke up, and things started coming out of my mouth, that were different and hmm. I knew it was because of that hug hmm. I knew it had affected me and so all that really got my attention and I thought I better check this out more and I went to the next sitting that he was having Samuel and he did a meditation with the group and in the meditation I experienced the witness consciousness hmm. for the first time that I was aware of hmm. and I knew very well what that was from my study that I had engaged, but I was not aware of ever having experienced that before. And I said, there is something happening here. I need to check this out. Hmm. And a week later, I went to two more gatherings and a weekend event, and I said, this is my new home. I need to be here. Hmm. So it was a very graceful, organic transition that happened. Is it of interest to you, or has it been something that you've been trying to process since leaving Adidas community? the kind of um, paradox between the fact that someone can have a great deal of spiritual power and and radiance and influence and so on, and yet have other aspects of his life that seems to not jibe with that. I mean, I I met a guy who had been with Adida for 17 years, and he left because Adida was screwing his wife to put it you know a little bit indelicately and he he gave me a whole laundry list of stuff that the guy was into which were which was quite disturbing it would have been if i had been you know involved with him but at the same time you know i I heard so many wonderful things about him from from people and, and you know people say his books are so brilliant and you know this is 
for over the years this has been a kind of an issue with me, not only with him but other teachers, of why there's so often a, a dichotomy between you know, some aspects of who they appear to be and then other aspects of their behavior. I mean, I, I've kind of come to the conclusion, to put it in the nutshell, that, you know, to use Ken Wilber's analogy, there can be lines of development and a person can be very developed along certain lines and, and stunted in others. Um, they're not completely blossomed as a spiritual, to the full extent of, of possibilities in terms of spiritual development, even though they may think they are. So do you have any reflections on that? I think it would be good to sort of touch upon it in passing, or maybe it's of no interest to you, I don't know. Oh, it's definitely of interest to me, <laughs> and was something that I, it didn't disturb me the way that it had disturbed some people, and I think partly um, people who were involved and in receiving the tremendous gifts that so many of us receive from Adida were able to, um, in a maybe subconscious way or something, to uh, to accept that there was, you know, different things going on. And yeah. for me, it was always a balance point of, you know, am I fundamentally in integrity with myself and is the good outweighing what's not working for me? Mm -hmm. And I was able to be at peace with that. And I think most people did that on some level or other. Um, and some people got to the place where that wasn't the case, where there were things going on that were too disturbing for them, too unsettling and non-supportive, and that's when they decided to leave. And a lot of people left with anger. Yeah. A lot of people, or hurt. There were many people who had a lot of hurt when they left and went through a difficult process. Also, a lot of people went through a difficult process. It was like a divorce because there was such a deep love mm -hmm. that the people who were there, especially people who stayed for a long time, had for him. And it's very much like a divorce, what people went through. So I was very, very blessed because my I didn't exit out of anger. I didn't um, have a difficult experience that caused me to leave. I just left because my I was guided somewhere new. And in some ways, I feel like my whole life has been like that. I've been so blessed. Mm -hmm. And so, and also that I went to another community. A lot of people who left didn't have another community to go to, and that was a very hard thing too. So I was, you know, I I didn't go through that. But I think Ken Wilber's description is a very good way of looking at it, and more or less, you know, in my own, you know, explanation how I understand it. And also, one of the things that I came away with. Um, after leaving the Adida community and then even after that is that I don't any longer relate to awakening or enlightenment as one event. And so it, definitely when I was in the Adida community, you know, there was a, a structure that Adida was teaching and it had to do with, you know, he's awake, awakened or enlightened and he's helping other people to attain this. And it was like an end point, a goal. Right. And I don't see it that way anymore. And as a matter of fact, I view this whole progression as this progression into return and reunion with absolute divinity. And that what I see it in terms of um, dimensions, and in the book I talk about this, 12 dimensions, and with us being in the, for, for the most part, and most of us operating in the third dimension mm -hmm. primarily right now. And what I think that most people were 
in a more traditional sense are talking about when they talk about enlightenment or awakening is some degree of the fifth dimension hmm. and that there's quite a bit beyond that so if you don't see it as just one event where it's all or nothing you're either there or not then it's very possible that there can be different different levels different parts of yourself that are further along in this progression and mm. other parts that you know mm. are needing more help so it makes more sense to yeah me. No, that's excellent I, I I want to talk more about those dimensions with you a little bit later in the interview um, and you know what you just said pretty much describes the way I see it these days um, I also used to think of enlightenment as a static terminus and and even now I'm mean, just the other day I was reading a quote from some teacher that said you know either you're awake or you're not it's like being pregnant or dead you, you know you're 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 <laughs> you know you're you're either dead or you're not you're pregnant or you're not and the same same with enlightenment or awakening and you know but in my experience which uh, admittedly is not you know it's still a work in progress um, and in, but also in my experience of interacting with other people um, I've gotten the impression that it's a, an ongoing process and that there are many, many degrees of awakening, never-ending degrees of unfoldment, refinement, embodiment, you know, whatever you want to call it. And obviously there's some component there that once realized doesn't change in and of itself. That there is a non-changing aspect to life, but the um, infusion of that component if you will, or the reflection of that, there's no end to the, to the degree of progress in, in that realm. You know what I mean? The way that I look at it is that there are these, and in the book, this is a lot of what Mary's talking about too, these two aspects or faces of God. Mm -hmm. And she, the, the name, the label that she gives to them and the way she looks at them is the masculine and the feminine. Mm -hmm. There are other ways of looking at it too. And that's Shiva just, and Shakti. Exactly. Yeah. And that the masculine ultimately is this eternal, unchanging mm -hmm. aspect of the divine, the transcendental, what's prior to all of manifestation. And the feminine is the incarnate, the manifest, the um, inform, if you will, hmm. aspect of God. And so, and the feminine is always changing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's uh, the nature of change, birth, life, death, rebirth, the cycle of, you know, um, it's funny that we assign genders to them, you know, because why would we think that the pure, absolute, unchanging, silent consciousness is masculine? What, what is there that's masculine about it? Um, and, and I don't know, you know, and obviously uh, human beings have both components within them. You're right. not, you're not all one not, or the other. In, um, in, right. So it's but it is a little funny that we assign genders to them. And, and, and maybe a, a, a related question is, do women sort of embody more of what you just said and men embody more of the transcendent quality and maybe that's why we call them that's why women are women and men are men yes I think that's in general true and for each individual there's you know varying right. degrees and all of that but yes I was um, on a panel discussion this week with a man um, who is specializing in the masculine and supporting men in particular in incarnating the masculine and he had an image I really really liked um, this is his name is Dwayne Classen, mm -hmm. and um, his image was taking the yin yang sign mm -hmm. and cutting it down the middle. Mm -hmm. And if you took look at each side, each side of that symbol has about seventy percent of one of the elements, yin or yang, and thirty percent of the other. Mm -hmm. And he says, in general, for men and women, that's about the right percent where you're. Um, 
functioning within yourself and in relationship to the other pole mm-hmm. um, pretty optimally. And I, I like that. I thought yeah. that was really good. Do you think gay people have more of a, a balance in the other direction or something, and that's why we have gay people? They may, but in most gay relationships, you'll usually see that one person is more hmm. in the masculine role and one person is more in the feminine role. Hmm. Interesting. All right, so we've taken a tangent, but I want to get you back <laughs> to your story. <laughs> uh, you know, you were you had left Adida and you were getting involved with the Waking Down community, and let's take it from there. Yes. <laughs> so what happened is that... Um, Within four months of coming into the Waking Down community, I went through a very profound awakening, Mm -hmm. what they call in that community the second birth. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was really the fulfillment of my spiritual seeking um, for all those years. And it was knowing, knowing who I was at the fundamental core of my being in union with God. And it was a fundamental shift, something within me, absolutely changed and I don't think about it so much anymore except once in a while when I'm having a conversation with someone and we'll be talking about our mind and our consciousness and they'll describe you know kind of the way their mind is working and I'll go oh yeah I remember I used to be like that (laughs) and then I can see that something has changed but it's the way it is so often with human growth where you're striving and striving for something and then you achieve it and it becomes just sort of ordinary and oh well and you go on. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the way we're wired. Even in material realms, you know, you get a new car and it's oh boy, it smells so good and it feels so good and a, a few weeks later it's like, yeah, you know, it's my car. <laughs> it's the car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I went through that and in some ways it was a bit of a crisis for me because my whole life had been about this awakening and knowing who I was in relationship to God and the world and all of that and suddenly that quest wasn't there anymore. It, I was at peace. I felt like I had completed that. Can you, so, can you elaborate on that experience a little bit more? I'm, th- I'm just thinking some people might want to say, okay, well, who was she or what, what was this experience exactly? Okay. Well, there were two stages to it. And um, the first stage, I'm trying to remember the name that they give and I can't even remember, but it was something about wa- awakening to the witness consciousness. And this was what I experienced Um, that first time in that meditation with Samuel. And I continued to experience this every single time that I meditated with Samuel or any of the other teachers who were teaching at that time in in the waking down process. Um, And then the first step is to start to realize that outside of meditation, Mm -hmm. where you are continuously connected to that, in contact with that. And that happened after about two months where suddenly I realized it was always with me. It reminded me of a computer screen where if you're running a program and then you can um, hit a button and it minimizes the program and it just goes down to this little icon. I felt like this consciousness was always with me, but it was minimized. It was right here over at my left side. And whenever I wanted, I could click on it and be with it fully. Right. But I never lost my connection to it. It was always there. Yeah. And just like the computer analogy, it was running in the background, so to speak, doing a certain function, uh, you know, and serving its purpose. But right. it, did, it didn't need to be in the foreground all the time in order to serve that purpose. Right. And in my cosmology, my understanding, 
understanding now, the way that I relate to things, um, I would say that that was the masculine. That was the transcendental, the mm -hmm. pure transcendent nature of God that didn't really directly have anything to do at, at that time in my awareness with everything else. It was just, just the way that when you go into meditation, you go away from the world, away from everything that's happening. It was always there, but it was its own thing. It was not integrated. Not integrated, but it must have impacted the rest of your life, right? Uh, having, that, having awakened that as opposed to previously not having awakened that, it must have somehow had an influence or did that influence just grow gradually over time it was subtle but there was a sense of um kind of like peace and a sense of having something very special in your life mm -hmm. sort of like a special secret that you <laughs> just know and you're carrying with you yeah and the sense of, you know, I had this and it was just this blessed gift that was always with me. Yeah. And it must have, I mean, did, did that peace kind of begin to influence the way your mind functioned, for instance, or the way your behavior flowed? Like you referred to that woman, uh, someone Hanson, I think her last name was, who seemed so strong and different than the previous time you had seen her. So did something similar to that happen to you as a result of this awakening? I would say not immediately. What it did was it laid the groundwork, the foundation for the second stage of the awakening, and that's when things really started to change. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of like a germination period in some ways. The seed was planted. Mm. And um, the second stage I went through about two months later. And one of the things that precipitated it was that um, I was editing Samuel's book, he was working on what was his second book, but his really first public book um, called Waking Down. Mm -hmm. And um, I, had, I had done some work before in the Adidas community. I'd been in the editorial staff and uh, had done writing and editing work. And so, so he, at one point, had passed out a sample chapter, and I said, you know, that I loved it, and um, I would be really honored if he wanted to work with me and have me edit it. And I did a sample edit, and he said, this is great, let's do it. So I ended up editing the book. And um, as it was getting very close to coming out, I was really immersed in the teaching. And so I would say for the two weeks before I went through this full awakening, I was almost full-time all day long working on this material so I was very focused on all of the teaching that Samuel was given had given and um, and then I went to this retreat and at the retreat actually Sandra was one of the leaders of the retreat it was Sandra and Van at that time and um, I was in a group with three other people and we were particularly put in this group because Samuel felt all of us were very close to awakening mm -hmm. and he thought, you know, it would be supportive of us to be together. So he didn't regard that thing that had happened a few weeks before as awakening. That was just like the initial... He, that was part of his teaching was that there were these two stages uh -huh. to go through and okay. he saw that as the initial stage, but mm -hmm. no, that was not the full awakening. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was in this group and... Uh, it felt, it did have this feeling of being pregnant. <laughs> like we were very, very close and it was intense and there was this like intensity between all of us. 
And uh, on Saturday night of the retreat, we went out to dinner with Samuel and Linda. And at one point, Samuel looked at me and he said, Well, Mercedes, what's keeping you back? What, what do you have to do before you're ready to fully awaken? And I just felt fear, such fear when he said that. It was like the core of my being said, No! I'm not ready! And I said something like that to him. And he just said, Okay, well, when you're ready, you'll know. And I went home that night, and I remember I had vivid dreams all night. I was so disturbed, and I woke up in the morning, and I had this feeling like a truck had run over me or something. You know, it was just so intense. And I had the feeling I was just very, very close, and my ego was just holding on for everything it was worth, you know, like, no, 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 you don't want this. And I went to the retreat that morning, and um, we started out with the meditation, and um, the two leaders, Sandra and Van, were both leading the meditation, and we were doing an eye-gazing meditation. And first I meditated with Sandra, and it was very wonderful, and then I meditated with Van, and um, all in the large group, the meditate. When I say meditate, it was like we connected with our eyes gazing. And Van, at that point, because it was still new in the days of the waking down teaching, Van was the only person other than Samuel at that point who had brought someone through who was working with him into full awakening. And so, as I was meditating, the Van, I silently like said to him, Van, please help me. I don't know what I need, but please help me. And almost instantly. I had a response, and it was what I consider the moment when I awakened. And what happened was, um, it was a very simple experience. I I connected with my my awareness, my sense of awareness, and I saw it go out to a certain level and stop. And it was like that's my sense of who I am, and that's that's the limit of it as as much as it goes. And then all of a sudden, something. I want to say reversed, but that's not really the word, but something fundamental just changed. And it's like, whoosh, it just went out to infinity. And at the same time, there was a simultaneous awareness of myself as this one single point that was not in space or time, but you could say it was at the very center of everything. And that I was both. I was this absolute, infin- infinite everything, connected to everything, non-separate from everything, and I was absolutely nothing but a point. Mm-hmm. And that was that was the moment for me when everything shifted. And it took about a day to really kind of start to get a sense of what had happened. And what I realized was that... Um, I I understood what had happened by contrast to how I had been before and how I was now. It was like comparing the two is what made sense of it for me. And I realized that before I had always had this sense of me being separate from everything else. Whatever I was, which I didn't really know what I was, but I knew that it was somehow cut off, separate from everything. And that, so there was me, there was everything else, and there was separation. There were these three elements that were constants in my life. And that my life really had all of, everything I did in my life up to that time had been trying to come into union, to 
get out of separation. And no matter what had been, every, everything from everything that I had done had been motivated by that. And all of a sudden, I did not feel separate. And I did not feel separate from God, ultimate, ultimately. And I had no, no, none of this drive anymore. It was like there was this motor that was always running previously, and suddenly the motor had turned off. And there was just absolute peace. And that was the change. Nice. And that persisted. At, to this day, it's mm -hmm. never changed. Right. And I did not become perfect. I did not become the Buddha. I did not, I still had problems in my life. Mm -hmm. I still all, you know, I'm very normal in so many ways. But it's this internal shift that went, that has made a huge difference. And you mentioned the term full awakening several times, and yet earlier we were talking about it's an ongoing unfoldment. So how do, how do you use the, the adjective full to characterize that if there's going to be more? Yes. That was my big question. My <laughs> big question wasn't about Adi Da. It was about, well, what does this mean what I went through? And why am I not a perfect person? <laughs> you know, yeah. Was this really an awakening? But yet there was no question that I went through this profound change that has really affected me. And the other thing I want to say about it is, relative to the difference between that first stage and the second stage, the way that I see it is this second stage took that initial witness conscious of consciousness awakening and integrated it with every aspect of my being. Mm -hmm. So suddenly they weren't separate anymore. It wasn't this little program running at the side. Suddenly there was that was what was not separate from everything else. Mm -hmm. And so I think Samuel's term is a really good term because he calls it second birth, and it's like a birth. It's a beginning of a whole new way of relating to life and a whole new way of being. So that, to me, is why there's still this development and why there's this ongoingness. It's because you've come into a new level of integration that, to me, is as natural to us as all the stages we go through. It's as natural as a one-year-old learning how to walk. Mm -hmm. And then they go on, and there's so much beyond that. But there's no question they've learned how to walk, and they never forget. <laughs> so like in terms of this 12-stage thing you mentioned earlier, would this full, quote-unquote, full awakening have been like a certain stage, like stage five or something? and um, Or no. doesn't it fit into that model? I don't really see it as fitting into that model. Because I'm definitely... I consider myself definitely still seated in the third dimension. Mm -hmm. But I, th there are parts of me that are moving and already strong in, in what I would characterize as the fourth dimension and to some extent beginning in the fifth dimension. And I think there's that, you know, the, it's like streamers going forth, the parts of ourselves until all of us is ready and we move all together into that next level. Usually when, you know, we talk about well, when scientists talk about dimensions, they mean you know depth, height, and width are the first three dimensions, and then time is the fourth dimension. But um, when you use the term third dimension, I presume you mean the whole material world that we customarily live in, and yes. and the fourth would be what the what the, oh. the Hindus say is Turiya, which means fourth, which is transcendent, or what something else. I can't compare it to the Hindu because I'm not that familiar with what that means in that terminology. It just means like the transcendent state, fourth state, Turiya. 
but I think you're saying something different. I, I think I'm saying something different, too. Yeah. Um, I look at it as realms of manifestation, as what we would call our reality altogether. Mm-hmm. So it's much, much bigger than, you know, the scientific kind of analysis of these elements. Right. Um, and, there's our con- and it's based on the idea that our consciousness creates our reality. Mm-hmm. So... For those of us who are manifesting at third dimension right now, our consciousness primarily is operating at this certain frequency that's calling in what we know. And the third dimension is characterized by duality, mm-hmm. by separation, and by fundamentally, you know, our um, anchor, our base is in the physical, in the third dimension. Yeah. So you're saying that even now, after that awake, the, those awakenings, you are primarily operating in the third dimension because you have a physical body and a physical life and all that stuff. But but somehow somehow other dimensionality has been brought into it that kind of coexists with your third dimensional life. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and I think that awakening was a great support in that, in mm-hmm. opening my consciousness and starting to open me to other things other than only the third dimension. And the third dimension primarily is characterized by what Mary referred to as our lower mind, and that's the combination of our rational mind and our subconscious mind. And um, the fourth dimension is the beginning of starting to move into the higher realms, you know, from this point of view. And the fourth dimension, um, many of us, the experience, the most common experience we have of the fourth dimension is in our dream world. It's what um, we experience is with dreams, where we still have a physical body, but it's very light, you know, and it's, that's not the primary characteristic. The primary characteristic is this more energy aspect of ourselves. And the fourth dimension is much more energetically based and emotionally based. Mm-hmm. And um, there are, uh, it's a spectrum also in the fourth dimension. So there's lower aspects of the fourth dimension or higher aspects. And the lower aspects are more like what our nightmares are like. It's the heavy dreams we have of fear or terror or extreme sorrow, anger, very strong kind of dark emotions. And the higher aspects are the more blissful aspects of the, the you know, emotions of joy, love, ecstasy, peace, serenity, those kinds of things. And um, in some ways, it's kind of like the classic view that has been held in Christianity of what heaven and hell are like. And um, I think there's a basis in that in these realms in the fourth dimension. Okay. Um, so I want to make sure we're, we're kind of, I'm, that I'm not throwing you off on detours because this, this is all very interesting and we, I, I would like to talk about all, all these dimensions and the whole realm of possibilities but we still have a story that we're unfolding here <laughs> so, <laughs> the story. so we can kind of loop out a little bit then loop back again <laughs> okay so I went through this awakening I stayed in that community for about two years altogether I was stabilizing and coming into this awakening and integrating it with my life and the second year I became a teacher in the waking down process and it became apparent to me over the course of that time of teaching that that wasn't quite a fit for me it wasn't my my real path um, although there were very many wonderful things about it and at the end of that time I was still like, you know, wondering, well, 
you know, what, what is my path now? What am I going to do with my life? And I started having visions again. And uh, I had visions. Like you had when you were 12, like vision. You know, you had, the, had, had visions time, for a long but time. But I had visions again, right, since yeah. I was 12. And they were very different visions. This time it was a vision of being on the side of a volcano mm-hmm. and being at a very beautiful lake where I was leading a group of women in ceremony. And shortly after those visions started, which, again, I had a number of times, um, I met a man, fell in love, and uh, he was headed back to Hawaii, where he had lived before. And he invited me to come visit him in Hawaii. I got there, and there was the volcano and the lake, just like I had seen in my visions. (laughs) Nice. Yes. So I ended up moving to Hawaii. And um, I was on the big island, and my spirituality definitely turned at that point uh, to be connecting with the earth very strongly and with, you know, earth as the divine feminine, our mother, because I didn't really have that at all in my background. And um, while I was in Hawaii, I, in addition to making this very strong connection with the earth, I started to... Uh, receive messages from spirit, very simple messages. Most of them were directives to me about things to do in my life, do this, do that, that kind of thing. And these messages came in the form of like actual words as if they were a loudspeaker or more like a subtle impulse kind of thing? Most of the time the messages came what I would call telepathically, which is mm-hmm. means they were delivered directly to my brain and I I suddenly knew them. But I knew it was, I could tell the difference between my own thoughts and these messages. It was very clearly two different kinds of things. But that's how I would experience them. But one actually did happen where um, it was a voice that I heard, a very loud voice. I was asleep and it was so loud it woke me up. (laughs) And uh, it was a directive to me. It was rather humorous, I thought. Uh, It was telling me the message was, buy gold. Wow. And I knew nothing about, I was like, buy gold? What does that mean? I didn't even know that people could buy gold. Hmm. And uh, so I took a month and I researched it on the Internet and found out that gold was at an all-time low and it was a great wow. time to buy gold. Wow. Cool. So you bought some. So I did. Great. Sounds like it was a smart move. So huh. I, lots of funny stories about that. But then what happened was um, I was leading a workshop at one point. It was actually a sacred sexuality workshop, and that's a story unto itself that I won't go into. But one of my friends said, oh, have you ever heard of this book by Mary Magdalene? And I said, no. And she said, oh, if you're teaching sacred sexuality, you should read this book. And I said, okay, great. So she loaned it to me. It was a channeled book, channeled by Tom Kenyon from Mary Magdalene. And in it, Mary Magdalene was telling her story, saying that, um, in very summary form, that she was a priestess of Isis. She was um, prepared for her meeting with uh, Yeshua, the Aramaic name of Jesus, uh, specifically by being trained in the sex magic of Isis, very high practice within the priestess lineage, and that he was similarly trained, and they were prepared to come together and practice this Um, sacred sexuality, which she called the sex magic of Isis, as part of both of their spiritual paths, but specifically empowering Yeshua 
to do his final miracle, which was to die, go into the underworld, and lay a path of light for all beings to follow. And that their work was a key element in transforming his um, energy body into pure light and empowering his spiritual body to do this final miracle. And then she went on from there to explain the practices in very simple form that they were doing of sacred sexuality. And I, as I read this, um, this was new material. I hadn't heard of these practices before. And they instantly became activated in me as I was reading the book. And by the end of the book, I was feeling quite amazed at what was going on and had an integration that happened. And I realized I was remembering that at the cellular memory level, my body knew these practices all before because I had done this practice. I had been in this temple culture in Egypt as a priestess, and I had done these practices. And moreover, I had memories start to come to me of having known Mary Magdalene, having known Mother Mary, who was also a priestess of Isis, and that that was why I was following Jesus in these visions when I was that I had when I was 12 years old. It was because we had all been connected through the temple, and that it was a, a reconnection for me. So when I went through that, it was a big surprise, big surprise. And first of all, I was one of those people who had a definite attitude about channeling, that channeling was fluff, it was maybe delusional, not real, and definitely not the real spiritual path. And suddenly I'm reading this channeled book and saying, this is resonating with me. So that was very confusing to me. Also, because I still didn't associate myself with the Christian path, I was like, Mary Magdalene, Mother Mary, you know, I, I don't relate to these people. And Isis, I had no idea who Isis was or what the temple of Isis was. That was just like foreign to me. So I did what I always do, did. I got on the Internet, started researching who's Isis, what's the temple of Isis, and I couldn't find anything. I found one book, and I ordered it, and it was very unsatisfying, didn't really answer my questions. And I tried to find someone who could give me information, and I only found two people on the Internet. One was Tom Kenyon, who had written the book. <laughs> and I wrote to him, and he never wrote back. And... Um, then I found a woman who was a psychic, and she felt like she was connected to ISIS, and I did some work with her, but it wasn't really what I was looking for. I wanted really very grounded details, information, and I wasn't getting that. And so finally I said, as best I knew how, I didn't know how to do this, but I just did what I could figure out to, to do, is I had a conversation with ISIS, and I said, ISIS, if you're real, if this is real what's happening to me, I need help. You're going to have to guide me. I can't find this on my own. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know where to go. You're going to have to guide me. And what happened is she started coming to me and giving me these telepathic messages. Very, Only a couple of times, very simple. And the main one was that I was to lead a uh, priestess training for women. 
And she told me that. I'm like, what? <laughs> You've got to be kidding. I said, I'm only awakening to my background as a priestess. How am I going to lead a training for other people? And she said, don't worry. I'll give you everything you need. That was, in some ways, I look back and I see it as a test. But it was a huge leap of faith for me to advertise and put out that I was going to lead this training that I knew absolutely nothing about. Yeah, really. <laughs> but I did it. And what happened was the morning before the first gathering, she came to me and she gave me the full download of everything I was to do, the full activities down to the music I was to play, everything. Interesting. And she continued to do this every time we met. And uh, the group lasted for a year and was an absolutely amazing group. Hmm. So I had that experience, and that brought me up to the end of 2009. And then that group ended at a year, and right at that time, I got a message from spirit, not from any particular being, just what I consider spirit, that I was to leave the Big Island. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, this was another test. I was... Very happy at that time living on the Big Island. I'd been there for 10 years, thought I was going to live there the rest of my life. Presumably you weren't still in a relationship with that guy whom you had been... Right. Right, okay. Right. So I asked three times mm -hmm. to check out and see if I was really getting this right. The message was very consistent, so I said, okay, because I had seen every time I had ever followed a message from Spirit, my life had worked out for the best. So I took off. Closed, took a few months, closed all my affairs, and, and left. The only thing was the message did not tell me where I was supposed to go. <laughs> I just said, leave the big island. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know where to go, so I went to visit my family on the mainland. And it turned out that um, my family was needing some help. My parents were both having some changes with you know, advancing age and... I was so happy to be there and be able to help them with some things that they were really needing support with. And so I did that for about four months. And all the while, I kept asking, okay, spirit, <laughs> where am I supposed to go? Where's my home now? And I didn't hear a thing, nothing. But almost to the day that I finished helping my parents, did everything that I could see that I was able to do, I started getting messages again. And I got a a few messages that guided me to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so I came here, and it was like the red carpet rolled out for me. Everything I needed was provided immediately, and th there were signs everywhere that this was exactly what was where I was supposed to be. With a couple within a couple days of arriving, I was meditating one morning, and all of a sudden I felt a very strong presence around me, a very beautiful, wonderful presence. And I especially felt it in my throat area, and I had the sense that I was blocking it somehow in my throat from completely coming through, and I really wanted to experience this presence. So I just put all my intention on whatever needed to happen for me to release this block in my throat for that to occur. And all of a sudden, a voice started speaking through me. And simultaneous with the voice beginning, there was this internal message that this was the voice of Mary Magdalene. And when you say speaking through you, it was just on your mental level, right? If someone had been in the room, they they would have heard you? Yes, I was oh, okay. talking out loud. E even though you were alone, you were talking out loud. I was talking out loud, and it was not my usual voice at all. Hmm. And um, 
I was just amazed. And she proceeded to give a full spiritual discourse, which now is the first chapter in the book, mm -hmm. the first message. And this was a first for me. I had never had that kind of message come through from any being or from spirit where it was a full talk, a, a discourse. And I was just amazed and in awe and by the time she ended I was like melted in a pool of bliss until I had a thought <laughs> how am I gonna remember this exactly All right. and I was like horrified I was like I can't just forget this this was too amazing what happened and also I was very sure that this was not just for me this was a very universal message that came through and I felt like this was my responsibility to record it and share it and so without a moment's hesitation or another thought, I asked her, would she give me the message again so I could get my computer and type it into my computer? And she said, yes. I went and got my computer. I'm a very fast typist. And she gave me the entire message verbatim, word for word, exactly hmm. identical to the first. And this time it was just coming to your mind and you were typing. Exactly. Yeah. And this, and I could not have done that. I could not have recreated that message again, and in verbatim. Mm -hmm. And so, what that did, beyond allowing me to record the message, which I really wanted to do, but it really confirmed for me that this was Mary Magdalene, because I knew that I I didn't have that ability to do what, what had just happened. It was like yeah. a miracle. Interesting. One doubt that came up when I first started, you know, reading your book and thinking about this is. Um, you know, there's a very creative level of the mind, and if you can tap into that sufficiently, you can become a Mozart or a Shakespeare or a, an Edison and so on, a tremendous creativity. And, um, you know, sometimes I wonder whether people who are channeling are just somehow tapping into an incredibly deep creative level of the mind and just expressing something from who knows where, but it doesn't necessarily involve other beings or on subtle levels or anything. Like, for instance, I have, had a friend who... Used to do channeling, and, and he, he one time he claimed he was channeling Merlin, and he would come out with a Scottish brogue. And I don't even know if Merlin ever existed, but he would go into this big long thing that that Merlin was giving him. And um, you know, so I've always, you know, I'm not, I'm not um, saying this. I'm saying this in a gentle way because obviously for the most part I, I totally believe you but there, there's these kind of doubts that come up and I wonder if there could be some other explanation and I'm hopefully giving voice to doubts that listeners may have that you know and offering you the opportunity to address those doubts before we proceed. I had those doubts too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I even asked one of my very close friends uh, from Hawaii at one point who uh, I shared some of some of Mary's um, messages with her, and I said, "Do you think this is just me?" <laughs> and she read it, and she said, "No, I don't think this is you. I've never heard you express anything like this." She said, "She said there's an aspect to it that is definitely related to you, but this is different." And that really helped me. Well, that's another thing. Is uh, you know, could it be that? there is some genuine message coming from Mary Magdalene or whoever the, the you know, whoever is being channeled in this case Mary Magdalene and yet it's being colored to a great extent by the individuality of the person like you know there's Ramtha and that whole thing and, and who knows to what extent that's being colored by the personality of Jay-Z Knight however 
Uh, having said that, you know, I answered that doubt in my own mind by saying, well, but Mercedes actually prepared herself to a great extent as a, as a vessel or a conduit before this started happening. You know, there was a, a genuine uh, awakening to a non-dual state or whatever we want to call it. And so the likelihood of coloration is probably much diminished compared to somebody who hadn't gone through such a transformation. I think everyone who channels other beings influences it to some extent or other. There is this, what you're calling coloring. Yes, I mm. believe. And I think with different channels, it's to a different degree. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that I think people look for or should look for when they're you know, involved with someone who's channeling is how clear is the channel? How much is this person you know, influencing what's coming through and how much does it seem like it's a pretty clear communication? Yeah. I mean, for one thing, it, it sort of had to be Unless Mary Magdalene has learned English, maybe on that level you know all languages, <laughs> but you don't speak Aramaic, and so it was coming through in English. And no, and also one of the things that was a real question for me was um, one of the things that happened. Backtracking a little bit, when I was in Hawaii, is I got exposed to the nonviolent communication teaching, and I was very involved with that. I taught nonviolent communication for most of the time that I was in Hawaii, and was very. Um, dedicated to it, thought it was a very valuable, you know, tool of raising consciousness, really. And when Mary started coming through, she incorporated a lot of these concepts into her um, messages. So if you're familiar with the nonviolent communication, you'll see a lot of bleed through in her messages. So were you thinking that that, that was your nonviolent communication? That's what I was worried yeah. about, very worried about. But Later, because I was so new, I, I was such a tabla rasa, blank slate to this whole world, I didn't know very much about channeling. And now, having done it for you know three years and, and being much more familiar and understanding of what happens, the way that I see what happens with channeling is that the person who's channeling, um, if they're able to do this, they open themselves to the higher being, and the higher being... Um, kind of kind of reads their mind in a certain way. It's like you're you're giving them access to your mind, to the concepts in your mind, the language in your mind, everything, and then they can use that to communicate with us. So it's like my mind is the software in some ways, and all my ideas are the software too. And whatever they find valuable in my mind, they select from that to to make their communication. And that's why there is this bleed through, I think, and this integration. And relative to my preparation, I think there was a lot of guidance going on for me in all the preparation during this yeah, life. Yeah, preparing you for it. Yeah, that, that, that rings true to me. So yeah. what, you, what you're saying is that you wouldn't be a very good channel for Albert Einstein because <laughs> you, don't, you don't have that kind of... Um, the software you know, would be sadly lacking. Yeah, you don't have that kind of training, but, but for Mary Magdalene, you were a, a good fit because you had gone through right. so many you know, relevant things. Right. And yeah. even the nonviolent communication, because so much of her teaching is about the the feminine, and especially she's focusing on the emotional realm. And the nonviolent communication gave so many tools and understandings for working with that that I think she found that is very helpful for what she wanted to communicate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so. Uh so what next? Um, this is your first. You, you had your first session, and that there, there were twenty-eight of them, as I 
recall. 25. And 25 of them over yeah. almost a month. And the, the whole thing just kept unfolding, and, and then I guess it stopped. I, hadn't, I haven't finished your book, but I got through a bunch of them. Um, so lay it out for us. What, what among all those readings, are, you, you can go take as much time as you like to explain as much detail of everything that, that was conveyed, if, if you wish, or just give us teasers so people will buy the book, whatever, whatever you prefer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love to share about this information. I have so much passion about it. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't realize it at the time that she gave me the first message, but it was really her thesis statement for the whole book. And she is absolutely brilliant. I am so impressed with her mind and what I consider her brilliance. And um, she continued to every day come to me um, and give me a message a day which became the structure of the book. Each message was a chapter and it was perfectly laid out where like I said the first message had her whole thesis statement for the book and then chapter by chapter she was developing that with such depth, wisdom, brilliance, and um, all the way through to the ending. And it actually, I felt as I was around the 21st, 22nd message, um, that it was winding to a close. I could feel that it, a sense that she had said what she wanted to say, it was complete. And I was, at that point, I was feeling incredibly sad. I had so much treasured this, you know, amazing communion with this high being virtually every day and was really sad about it. However, she, it, it had become clear to me fairly early on in her giving me these messages that she was giving me a book. And it was like I had my marching orders. I knew what I had to do, and I had a lot of work ahead of me. I knew. And so there was a mixture of, like, it's time for me to get out and do my part and time to let go of having this kind of connection with her that I had so much treasured. So around the 22nd message, I thought, this is it. This is the end. And then I went the next morning to meditate and thought, Am I going to be able to connect with her? Is she going to be here? And she came through, and her quality was so different. For those first 22 messages, it was like she was fiery. She was intense. She had a mission, and the mission was about us, helping us and service to us. And now it was like she knew that it was done. She had done what she had come to do through this interchange and it was almost like there was a sigh of relief like phew okay now we can relax and I felt a very different quality of like kind of like two women together just woman to woman so sweet and she gave me uh, that 23rd message is was the most special message of all where she talked about her love of Yeshua And it was so exquisite. Very, it was the shortest message of all and just spoke to my heart with such purity and beauty. Mm. So that was very, very special. And then the next day, she came again. And again, I was wondering, is she going to come? Are we done? She came again. It was that same quality of sweetness, intimacy. And she said, today I'll tell you more about sexuality which she had definitely gone into in the book, but I had a sense that she wasn't going too far, that she was reserving that for what I thought was going to be a second book. 
but she knew that all of us had great interest in sexuality and she was aware of that and so she said I'll, I'll tell you more and so in a very sweet again kind of woman to woman exchange she gave me that message that was revealing a little bit more about the sacred sexuality practice that she was trained in and her lineage in that then she came one more time and that was the 25th message and this one was like to me it was it's funny that you mentioned Joan of Arc earlier because I always think of this message as being like Joan of Arc it was like the call to action gathering the troops the rally to let's go forth and do this now and uh, one of my friends called it her manifesto and uh, it's very passionate and she's really I feel like you know passing the torch to us and saying I've given you all you need go do this this is important and this will serve you and that was the completion. Hmm. Were all 25 of these messages the same in terms of speaking them out loud and then going and sitting down and getting them again? Or, or, how, did, or how did you, I mean, if you got them while you were meditating, how did you go later and type them in? Now, knowing that uh, I was going to be engaged in this process, I brought my computer with me into meditation. <laughs> oh, so you would just start typing? I would just start typing. I yeah. see. Huh. And um, so, you know, looking at all 25 messages, what, what is the general teaching or message that has come through? What what was the what was conveyed? You know, what is it that we need to know? Okay, well, she starts out right from the start saying this is a very special time, and that we're moving into a new age, and that it has everything to do with the balance of the masculine and the feminine, and that for most of us that is going to require strengthening of the feminine because most of us have for a very long time been suppressed in the feminine and the masculine has dominated not just culturally but within each of us in terms of our internal development of our own masculine and feminine and that this is the time uh, for the feminine to come forth as both come, becoming strengthened so that it comes into balance and also that the feminine is leading in this transition into the new age. And it's a new age not of dominance of the feminine but of union and unity and equality between the masculine and feminine. And that's why she's coming forth. And she said that she, both she and Yeshua knew it was going to be 2,000 years before the world was ready to receive the feminine in all of her forms and to receive Mary Magdalene as in her form as leader and teacher and that in her relationship with Yeshua she was equal they were both teachers but the world wasn't ready for her and that they knew it wouldn't be for 2,000 years so this is the time now now Yeshua or Jesus you know obviously made an impact by being on the earth in a physical form and performing miracles and all that stuff um, in her case she hasn't been on the earth for 2,000 years so I guess there's two questions here what she's been doing all this time and you know how, how do they pass the time up there <laughs> and and the second thing is you know how could she possibly make as big an impact as he made if she's only going to remain in a non-physical form I mean your book is only reaching a tiny tiny fraction of humanity um, is it you know can we expect uh, hundreds of years from now to have uh, Mary Magdalene proliferated throughout the, the cultures of the world to the extent that Jesus did early on or the feminine or you know you know what I'm, you, this gives you plenty to chew on here <laughs> ultimately I guess I would my answer would be yes but uh, there's different 
aspects to, you know, different questions you were asking. I think we are moving into a time that's going to be about the balance of the masculine and feminine, and I think it's inevitable that, um, you know, I, I guess I, I believe in God, I believe in this spiritual process that seems so real to me, and I, I don't think there's, I think there's a choice about how we're going to get there, how long it's going to take, but in my mind there's no question that this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so with that there's going to be this change where there is going to be this balance of relating to the feminine leaders, the feminine spiritual teachers, figures, and to Mother God as much as Father God. Hillary in 2016. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, so would you see, um, you know, environmental degradation and the whole, you know, 99%, 1%, you know, economic imbalance and, um, you know, various warfare and all that kind of stuff. Are these all manifestations of imbalance between masculine and feminine? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. For example, take the environment. One of the things that she's talking about is that there are three um, foundations of the feminine within human beings, and that's our body, our sexuality, and our emotions, mm -hmm. and that those have to be strong, infused with the divine feminine and purified. There's, there's a maturing and a, a fullness in each of us for those foundations to be in their full state. And when I look at the environment, it's, first of all, to me, it's a manifestation of the way we, we relate to our own bodies, because that's the body of the earth. Mm. And so if we can treat it with such abuse, it's a reflection of how we treat the feminine, absolutely, and how we relate to our own feminine, how suppressed it is for yeah, some of us, not I, of us. I pick up a lot of garbage as I ride my bike around town, you know, and I recycle it or throw it away. And I wrote a letter to the editor of the paper a few years ago, and I said, well, you know, you can't expect the people who are you know, throwing this stuff by the roadside to stop doing it, because considering what most of these containers contain, they don't even care about their own bodies, so how are they going to care about the environment? But at least maybe the rest of us could pick up the stuff and give ourselves a clean town. But, but that's it. I mean, yeah. if, if people don't even care about their own bodies, what uh, the, the ruination of, of the environment is a logical extension of that. Right, absolutely. And, um, you know, relative to war, there's so much that could be said about that. But I think in some fundamental ways, it's seated in our, you know, conflict within ourselves and our pain within ourselves. Um, that, and that has everything to do with our emotional body and the way that we've related, learned to relate to pain. And that is more than anything else what Mary Magdalene is talking about in the book because she says more than anything else, that's what's holding us back in our spiritual growth and our movement into this new age. And that... Um, what is it that's holding us back? That pain, emotions altogether, but including pain... Mm -hmm were given to us as humans as a pathway to connect with God. And most of us never learned that. Mm -hmm. And instead, we learned how to relate to painful emotions, especially in a way that's blocking our union with God. Mm -hmm. We learned how to try to get out of pain as quickly as possible, to not feel it, and to avoid it as much as we're able. 
and all of those things are obstructing us. And her biggest work that she's bringing forth in the book is very specific and clear instruction about a different way to relate to pain that will liberate us and bring us into union with God. And what is that? Okay. Well, she's, it has steps. And the first step is, um, and this applies to joyful emotions as well as painful emotions, but for the most part, most of us aren't hung up on our joyful emotions. It's our painful emotions that we have a hard time with. So the first step is when you're experiencing some kind of pain is to notice and become aware that you're in pain. Now, this is, step is only necessary because most of us have de developed strategies of avoiding pain. And these strategies are so deep-seated and so immediate that for most of us when we're in pain, we immediately go into something else and then we think what's happening is the something else instead of the pain. And for most of us, we don't even notice what's really going on, what our pain is. And so at this So you mean we might indulge in food or TV or other diversions or something in order to Become it very out. busy. Uh, blame is a big one. We go into blame. Mm -hmm. And that is projecting the pain outward onto something else with our thinking. Mm -hmm. it's, it's your fault. It's because of this, blah, 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 instead of I'm in pain right now. So there's all different levels, and most of us have our favorites, <laughs> the ones that we've developed as our personal style, but most of us have them. So we need this first step of coming into awareness that we're actually having a feeling and in some kind of pain. The second step is to make a conscious choice to open to the pain. Even a step beyond that is to embrace it, to fully allow it to the point that you merge with the feeling. Mm -hmm. Then, the next step after that is again a consciousness step, and this is to identify the source of the pain. And most of us mistakenly think that the pain has been caused by something external to us, some event that triggered this pain. But Mary is suggesting, no, that's not the case, that the source of the pain is something within ourselves that has not that's not being fulfilled. And she calls these our inner divine qualities. Mm -hmm. And so she says the actual function of emotions, and in this case painful emotions, is it's a communication device that lets us know that something's going on with these deeper inner divine qualities and that somehow we've gotten disconnected from them and we need to reconnect. So at this point, what I'd like to do is give a practical example because this okay. is very abstract and I think it really helps to ground it and understand. Sure. So the example that I like to use is a, a simple one and sadly I think a very common one for a lot of us, <laughs> which is that we're driving uh, out in the road somewhere and suddenly someone cuts us off. And for most people, the typical response is some form of anger ranging anything from mild annoyance to complete rage. <laughs> and uh, if you're a spiritually oriented person and you're really dedicated to bringing your spirituality into your everyday life, perhaps you might have a more spiritual kind of response such as blessing the other person or staying detached, not getting affected by what the other person has just done, something like that. Or it might, you might spontaneously do those things. It might not be manipulative. You might just not react as much as somebody else might react. 
without but, without doing all kinds of right. You know, but it, but it's a response. It's yeah, some yeah. kind of a response that you're making. Sure. Mary's suggesting something different for many of these. Mm -hmm. She's saying rather than doing something in response to what just happened that's, you know, in, in, in relationship to the other driver or in, in terms of taking care of yourself or something like that, that actually first thing is to bring this awareness to notice what you're feeling. Mm. And so in this case, the feeling might be, let's say, anger mm -hmm. about what just happened. And that the next step would be to open to that feeling and fully embrace it. Allow yourself to really have the experience of anger, not having to do anything in response to it. Just be with. And this is one of the key characteristics of the feminine is it has to do with being rather than doing. The so it might be handy to pull your car over to the side of the road so you could really <laughs> delve into it because otherwise you've got to keep putting your attention on other things if you're driving down the road and you can't give it your full attention. Especially if you're new to this process. As mm -hmm. you start to get familiar with this process, it becomes very quick mm -hmm. and very easy to, to, to go through these steps, even while you're engaged in some other form of functioning. But in the beginning, yeah, you might need mm -hmm. to give it more attention than that. That might be really valuable. So you allow yourself to really open and have this experience of being with the feeling, in this case, the anger. Then the next step is to bring your consciousness to inquire what is the source within me of this anger. And again, this is something that if you engage this process, you'll start to become more familiar with how do I identify that. And in the book, there's actually a chart given um, that comes from the Center for Nonviolent Communication, and it's a chart of what they call human needs. And she says these are basically the same as what she's referring to as inner divine qualities. And so it can be helpful to look at all these, and they list about 80 different of these qualities. In this example that we're giving, the quality, well, first let me say that the qualities are always something beautiful. All of our painful emotions, all of our joyful, wonderful emotions are always sourcing out of something beautiful within us. And so in this case, what I would identify as what is, may likely be the source would be safety. That Your safety you were, has been jeopardized. Right. You were needing safety and you got disconnected from your internal sense of safety, the way safety lives within you. And ultimately, our true safety is in God. These qualities ultimately are always leading us to the divine. But in, but in this practical sense, this practical circumstance, we got disconnected from our sense of safety. Oftentimes, there's more than one that's in, involved. So there may be others that maybe were secondary, not as important. In this case, it could have been something having to do with um, consideration or cooperation amongst drivers that your your the qualities of consideration and cooperation weren't fulfilled for you in this event that just happened so it's some kind of mixture of safety along with consideration and cooperation so what happens next is to allow yourself to well when you identify the inner divine qualities that are the right ones that got disconnected in this outer event, what happens is a very natural process of reconnection. You've identified them and suddenly you go back into, oh yes, 
these are those beautiful qualities within me and a natural process happens of reconnecting in this case with safety with consideration cooperation when that happens the feelings tend to either go away altogether or at least recede because they've done their job their job was actually to bring you to this inner connection within yourself and if you don't make that inner connection the feelings remain because they're still trying to do their job so that's how feelings get stuck in us and how they don't get healed because we haven't done we haven't made this connection with our wholeness once we make it the feelings recede we drop into this state of wholeness and we'll know we're there because we generally experience peace that is the number one quality that most people will report I feel peace now and you also feel like I'm back I'm whole within myself so then there's one more step from there mm -hmm. and the final step is to consider from this place now which Mary says what you've really reconnected with is your inner divinity you've reconnected with God ultimately and this is your bridge that takes you back to God now that I'm coming back from my union, it, now, now that I am in union from, with God, from that place of union, what action, if any, do I need to take? In this driving situation, the primary action you probably needed to take was that reconnection. And there's probably nothing else to be done at this point. But in many circumstances, there will be things that you need to do. But now you'll do them from a different place than that initial point of being disconnected when you are still disconnected from yourself and God now it's going to come from your wholeness and your peace and most likely that will be very different hmm. so it sounds all a little bit analytical but I'm sure that with practice it becomes more second nature um, it almost also sounds like you, you need to memorize all those non-dual communication points or non-violent communication points in, other, in order to identify which thing has been violated you know uh, yes you know because otherwise you might not realize oh safety and consideration those do uh. yes it's like a new map and it does help to have that chart and all that as a matter of fact um, I when I was first learning this I uh, made a, a sheet that I laminated and it really helped me to have that but eventually you get to know it because it's like you're learning your inner landscape mm -hmm. and this is actually something that's very natural to us but we've been cut off from it we were, according to Mary, we were very intentionally trained to deny our feelings starting from very young children because it supported the third dimensional authority structure. Mm -hmm. When people are cut off from their feelings and then cut off from the, the source in the inner divine qualities, they lose their power. And it's very easy then for them to be controlled and give their power over to outside authority. Mm -hmm. And she says that's part of this transition that we're going through into the new age is where we're not going to be giving away our power anymore. We're keeping our power and it's going to be a very different kind of structure that we're going to work in that's not an authoritarian structure. What do you do if the situation is more ongoing? Let's say, well, to give you two examples, let's say that in the traffic example you actually have an accident and the other guy gets out and starts yelling at you and yelling and yelling and yelling. So it's not just a, a brief thing, it's something that continues. And uh, uh, or a more perhaps serious situation is some uh, relationship in which there's emotional abuse that's going on month after month, year after year. Um, easy to numb down in, in that kind of a situation. Um, and 
I suppose, are you saying that this kind of practice could be helpful for a person in that circumstance and could enable them to gain the inner strength necessary to take appropriate action? And Absolutely. This is not about being passive and not taking action right. or separating yourself you know, from a, a somehow spiritually separate place. Mm-hmm. This is about empowering yourself and then you're ready to move into action. And mm-hmm. the actions are really limitless what you might choose you know you might be able to speak in a way that calms the other person down you might choose to separate from the situation you might you know you might do some of those things you initially thought of doing such as blessing or whatever mm. but but you're doing it now not as a distraction from your your own disconnection you're doing it from your wholeness and based on the principle that our consciousness is constantly creating our reality, this will actually create a different reality. And in my experience, it really does. It's really true. So we're talking about a different way of approaching manifestation. In the New Age spiritual community, a lot of people are very interested in manifestation. And they're doing it from the point of view of our thinking, changing our beliefs and changing our mind. And that is one way of approach. Uh, which I think depends on your qualities, how accessible and easy that is for you or not. But this is another way of approach, which is through our feelings and our inner divine qualities that's also very powerful for manifestation. And ultimately, I think the most powerful is the union of the two, to have access to both. Well, those things are much go much deeper than thinking. I mean, if we think of an ocean analogy, just thinking could be like the waves on the surface, and you know, having intentions or desires or resolves or whatever, just on that level, might not have much impact, much strength. But uh, you know, if you can access the depth, then well, to to stretch the ocean analogy, I mean, a shallow pond can only rise up in ripples, nothing much more, but a deep ocean could rise up in tidal waves, and the tidal waves are much more powerful than the ripples. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, you said that, you know, if you had to summarize Mary Magdalene's message, this whole thing about feeling pain and using it as a technique for um, going deeper and merging with the divine, that, that, as I gathered, was kind of the core message. But um, what else? I mean, or... Uh, may, or if, if, that, if I'm a little bit mistaken as to what the, the core message was, you can reiterate and clarify it and you know, it'll help everyone. I think that's her greatest gift that she's given is this practice relative to our emotions and relating to them in a whole different way. Okay. But it's a part of this bigger piece of strengthening our whole feminine for mm-hmm. each of us, men and women alike. And it has these three aspects relative to our relationship to our body, our relationship to our sexuality, and our relationship to our emotions. Mm-hmm. And so those are the three areas that she says, when they're strong, then the divine feminine can take her seat in our heart. Mm-hmm. And which so many of us are aware that that's what's so needed, is to be in our hearts. Yeah. And she says at that point, there's two aspects to the mind. And the mind is really more the masculine you know, pull within each one of us. And um, she says our lower mind is uh, made up of our rational thinking mind and our subconscious. When we're strong and seated in our heart, she says that becomes in service to our heart. For most of us right now, our lower mind has taken over because 
we haven't been seated in our heart because of these three other areas not being strong. And so it's like someone needs to man the ship here. So the lower mind has taken over. And that's why some of us, so many of us are plagued by this kind of constant thinking and all the complications of that. But that comes into balance when we're seated in the heart. The lower mind relaxes, says, okay, I can just be in service to do what, you know, I need to do. The mind and thinking is still important. And then the higher mind can open up. And that is the seat of the divine masculine. And she says, when, when that, so it's kind of a progressive process. These three areas of body, sexuality, and emotion becoming strong, going into the heart, the lower mind taking its place in service to the heart, the higher mind then opening, and this marriage happening between the heart and higher mind. And that's the gateway that leads us into this next stage, what I refer to as the fourth dimension, the new age we're moving into. Hmm. Um, I presume, correct me if I'm wrong, that the book doesn't contain everything one might need to know in order to attend to these three things, that there might be other practices or procedures or therapies or whatever that a person might need to get into, but th this is just, the book is sort of a introduction and a, a starting point maybe? Or? It's an overview and an understanding. Mm -hmm. um, relative to the body, she's saying, she is very clear that there's a tremendous wisdom out there. Often. I mean, you like pure food, yoga, Ex and all kinds of things that exercise, could help. Yeah. Exercise, people, all sorts of things, right. right. Fresh air. She, she touched on a couple points relative to the body, the main one being shame, mm -hmm. and he, that how important it is for many of us to heal shame and to love our bodies. And um, she talked a little bit about that as being like maybe the one area that could use some more attention <laughs> for a lot of us. And then relative to sexuality, she talked more about that and about relating to sexuality as a sacred function and um, in if we're choosing to be sexually active, engaging it in a sacred way. And, and if in, we're not, what about all the monks and nuns of this world? Well, then we need to engage our sexual energy in a sacred way. Mm -hmm. But it's not that we necessarily need to be practicing and engaging sexuality per se. Right. So, in other words, the energy is sublimated and, and transmuted in some way if, if we're going about it right and we're living that particular lifestyle. Yes? I no? I she would recommend sublimation. Well, she but what if, you're a, well, no, what if you're a priest or a monk or something? I mean, right. yeah, I mean, obviously some of them couldn't keep their hands off the choir boys, but, you know, the others that are... For good reasons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because they're not making right use of that energy. Sublimation fundamentally doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's like whatever you resist persists. Well, sublimation implies conversion, though. It doesn't just... It's not, okay. it's not the same as repression. Okay, exactly. Then I can agree with you. Yeah. And the pathways in sacred sexuality, we're basically using the sexual energy to activate s sacred spiritual pathways. Mm -hmm. And that can be done whether we have a partner or not, whether we're engaging sexuality or not. The practice is fundamentally, it's very similar to kundalini yoga. Right. And so in that sense, it doesn't require what we consider sexuality, you know, overtly. being with a partner, overt right. sexuality. It's working with the sexual energy. Mm -hmm. So that can be done by anyone and actually needs to be done, in my point of view, by everyone. It can happen organically. It can happen without having, you know, intentional focus on it. But 
if you learn the practices and choose to engage them, you're more likely to have this development and this strength happen more quickly and be of help to you, be of mm -hmm. service to you. So she's highly recommending that. But she didn't go into, you know, specific details about how to do that. And my sense was always that would be a second book. And, mm -hmm. in fact, there is a second book coming that will be specifically giving the practices of sacred sexuality. And based, not not from Mary Magdalene, but based upon your own under, your own knowledge and, and no, experience. No. Oh, from through, her through Mary. She's oh. already given me this book. I'm she, underway she's with back. Her. She's back. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, and then the third arena being working with emotions, and that's the one that she gave lots of detailed instruction about in this book because she felt that was the, the one area that could make the most difference for most people and the one area that's blocking us the most in general right now. Hmm. Um, nice. I have a, a question that might take us off in a different direction, but is there any, anything more you want to say about that whole, the whole package of knowledge that we've just been discussing? Um, the other thing that she goes into in some of the later chapters is she does go into things that involve our thinking and the way we tend to use our mind. And mostly it's in relationship to the, those patterns of avoidance that we've developed. And one of them that she talks about a lot is um, judgment, blame, the idea of seeing the world through the lens of right and wrong and judging certain things as right and certain things as wrong and how that is um, holding us back. Mm. And what ha and that the source of that again is being divorced from our heart and our feeling, mm. and that the solution to that is not to try to be judgmental because again that's a, a resistive active action, instead to get to what that's blocking, which is our feeling, and the judgment will naturally, you know, dissolve. Yeah, there was a nice quote from somebody. Let me just see if I still have it on my iPad here. No, nah, I think I deleted it. Anyway, oh wait, here we go. She said, uh, you know, this is from the woman I interviewed last week, Amoda Majiva, and she said, you know you're operating from the personal when things appear black and white. You judge right and wrong, label good and bad. Mm -hmm. yeah. That is a hallmark of the third dimension. Yeah. And going beyond that, we are starting to move into fourth dimensional consciousness, and that to me is what Mary is supporting us in doing. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that you... Don't I mean let's let's play with this a bit. I just uh, listened to a talk by a, a, a man that I had interviewed a while back, uh, who wrote a book about child prostitution in Nepal and India, and how uh, as many as two hundred thousand young girls have been kidnapped from Nepal, and they're you know living in brothels in various Indian cities. Now I have a pretty strong judgment about that. Is you know that's wrong. Uh, so you know it doesn't. So I'm I, I don't think you're saying. Oh, just be, you know, everything is cool, whatever happens, you know, it's, no. all, it's all an illusion. You know, no. You're not saying anything like that. I'm not saying that because that would be disempowering right. to say that. That's sort of like, to me, like a spiritual bypass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, no, I'm saying that you take it to your feeling. In that, this case, you're probably feeling horrified. Yeah. That this is so horrifying to you. And the inner divine quality would be, you know, that you absolutely you know have this profound need for protection for human life and well-being yeah and in his case this is Stuart Perrin I'm referring to he's he's set up a whole foundation and they're you know raising money and doing all kinds of stuff to try to combat the problem he's a very spiritual guy he's, he, he, but so so this whole thing about judgment and right and wrong does not mean 
you don't take a stand. I mean, Jesus himself, if the story were true, he went into the temples and upturned the money Absolutely. changers and all Absolutely. that. You know, he's he a pretty fiery dude at times. Absolutely. But if you take a moment to feel the difference between the stance, that's wrong. Right. Where I feel that, I feel that right here in my head. Mm -hmm. And I'm located in my head. And it puts me into a combative kind of disposition as opposed to that is, I feel horrified. I so much need protection for life and everyone's well-being. Mm -hmm. you know, and protection especially for young people who you know, are more vulnerable. That puts me in my heart. And it also puts me in my solar plexus, my power center. I have power to engage, to act from that place, but it's a different place. It's not a confrontational place. Mm -hmm. It's an empowered place of protection of life and protection of vulnerable beings. It has an in interesting implications for a lot of these issues that are so polarizing in today's society, like gay marriage, gun control, abortion, all these things that people are on diametrically opposed poles and, and you know, just no, middle gr no compromise, no middle ground, probably because they're on the level of the mind in, in trying to consider these things. And if, if there could be a sinking into the heart, then there might be some resolutions to some of these things. That's right, because when you connect with your own inner divine qualities, this is the source of compassion, because ultimately everyone has the same inner divine qualities. They might manifest in different ways in their life. They might have different strategies of trying to fulfill these inner divine qualities, but it's kind of like genes. We all have these same qualities. We all have the same connection to God. And so when we connect with those, we feel our connection to all other beings and we start to feel our care for other beings when we're connected one of our natural human qualities is care for others that is one of our inner divine yeah. qualities that gets activated when we're whole within ourselves and oftentimes in situations where people are diametrically opposed around an issue oftentimes the underlying inner divine quality is the same one mm -hmm. They just have different strategies that they have in their minds for how they have to get this fulfilled. But when they connect, when even one person connects with their inner divine qualities, it can help everyone to connect. And all of a sudden they realize their sameness, their, their connection, their non-separation at the core level. And it can do amazing things in terms of opening our creativity to find new strategies that aren't in opposition that are what Mary calls inclusive, inclusive of everyone. Rather than me versus you, we go into me and you. Mm. That's a nice point. I mean, take gay rights, for example. You know, one person might say, I love God, but I also love this person who happens to be the same gender as I, and I want that person to be my partner. And then on the other poll, you have got some guy saying, I love God, but God says, this is bad. You know? <laughs> so it's like... Uh, it's like God. It's like the old God is on our side. Uh, uh, alibi for wars is. Can he, is he, and both sides are saying it. You know, but obviously, if if you sink down to a deeper level, there's perhaps right. not that not that polarity. Right. They're both <laughs> wanting respect for their choices, support for their beliefs and values. Both sides are. Mm -hmm. So, what other strategies could we look at that would? that would support this for everyone, respect for everyone's choices, support for everyone's beliefs and values. 
Now, you said something a minute ago that triggered an, a new question, which is, what if one person is really operating from the heart, but everyone else isn't? Like in taking Jesus as a prime example, he was operating from a very deep, profound, cosmic level. Guess who got crucified, you know? Because all the, the people in the power that be in his society were not operating from that level, so he was completely misunderstood and feared and killed. <clears throat> so <clears throat> does it make one vulnerable, uh, susceptible to you know, evil forces if one, does one become innocent and lamb-like and then get slaughtered, you know what I mean? From a third dimensional position, it appears this way. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the fears that people have had at the third dimension. Um, I, this is a very interesting question to me, a very wonderful question um, that I think about because I believe that there is more that was going on in the crucifixion than we have yet understood, mm -hmm. including me. I have this very strong belief, but I don't know what it will be yet. It's not clear to me. But I absolutely believe that there was a very clear purpose for what occurred that's beyond what we understand. And part of this is that um, my own experience, my experience of coming from any time that I come from a higher consciousness, I see that my life is different, that I have a different experience in life. And um, sometimes I wonder, you know, I hear from people who are living in Santa Fe, and I hear people express, you know, Santa Fe is, and by the way, I live in Santa Fe, and other people will express, oh, Santa Fe is so hard, and there's so many people who are suffering, and I've had this happen, I've had that happen. I go, wow, are you living in the same place I'm living yeah. in? Think, I had such a different experience. If you think Santa Fe is hard, try Newark, you know? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> but I believe that that's what happens, is that if people have an experience that reflects their consciousness and it's not a judgment but it's actually like a physics it's a, a law of how reality works and how manifestation works and so I believe that you know taking the example of Jesus there was more going on than we realized about why that manifested in his case and you know there's this concept of being a bodhisattva and service to the world that is in Buddhism and Perhaps there's an element of that. I don't know altogether, but I just have a very clear sense that it's not because he was vulnerable and he lost and the third dimensional powers won. That's n I no, don't. I don't either. I was just kind of playing devil's advocate. I mean, some people say what happened was he took on huge amount of karma and that mm -hmm. if you align yourself with him, then you, you become one of the beneficiaries of his having done that. Yes, that's a whole other explanation that's very possible to me. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't have clarity about what it is, but I have a very strong sense that it's definitely for a higher purpose and it was a, a conscious choice. Yeah. Um, interesting uh, phrase, conscious choice. I mean, it's not like, I, I doubt that it was that he thought, hmm, I think it would be a good idea for me to get crucified. It was more like he's in tune with the divine will and the course of events were unfolding and this is what came to pass. And for a moment, he, if the, if the scriptural account is correct, he said, you know, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And then it was, okay, let thy will be done. Uh, you know, because he was accustomed to going with the flow in the highest sense of that phrase. That's right. And I can say from my own experience of mm. receiving guidance from spirit, 
it doesn't happen in advance. It's not like spirit says, okay, here's the future, so you don't have to worry about it. This is right. what's going to happen. It, I usually get my guidance right when on I'm On the fly. Yep. That's right. I say I'm on a need-to-know basis, and evidently I don't need to know very far in advance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I've heard this from other people who channel, who get guidance from spirit, that they have the exact same experience. Hmm. Interesting. Um, let's talk about, well, about a little bit more about Mary Magdalene's role in the world. I mean, you mentioned some other guy whose name I think started with K also who had written a book about her. And um, is it just you two or, or is she appearing to many, many people all over the place? And, you know, and, and, and not only she, but um, are there a whole bunch of these higher sort of beings that are appearing to a whole bunch of people? And, and this is just one way in which, um, you know, kind of divine guidance is being brought into the world? Yes, I very strongly feel that's the case. And there are many, many people who are getting messages from Mary Magdalene, many people who've written books. Some of them are books about what happened, you know, and some of them are written as fiction or historical fiction about what happened. Some of them aren't. Some of them are studies of her life with Jesus back 2,000 years ago. And some of them are more like, in my case, she was very clear she did not want to focus on her life with Jesus or what happened 2,000 years ago that for this piece that she was bringing through for me it was about helping us and focusing on us and our spiritual growth very much the way I understand that Jesus was working with people back when he taught and I think she is appearing to many many people and in different ways. My way was a, a teaching way, an instruction way. In others, it's more of in terms of a story because some people that will really, you know, speak to their heart and move them. In other people, it's more historical. And when I started um, sharing with people about what was happening with me, in the beginning I was very afraid to share. I thought people were going to say, you are crazy, <laughs> or else be angry at me. Like, that's not what happened, you know. Mm-hmm. That's not the story or whatever, because she does say some things that are challenging to the yeah. traditional church. Yeah, like her, her relationship that. with Jesus and everything, yeah. That she was a priestess of Isis, that they were practicing sacred sexuality. Those mm-hmm. things for many people are Not blasphemy. the party line, right. Yeah. So I was very worried about you know telling people and at the same time I was so excited about what was happening and so I started initially little by little to share the story and I was absolutely amazed that almost again and again I would have the experience of telling people that I was receiving messages from Mary Magdalene I'd hardly gotten the words out my mouth and people started telling me about their experiences with Mary Wow! and I had no idea that she was coming to so many people that so many people felt connected to her it's like an underground movement that I was totally oblivious to hmm. I didn't even know that so many people had written books about Mary Magdalene when I first started getting this no I didn't know and um, again I think that was in some ways by intention she didn't want me to be influenced by all the other stuff out there so that I would be a clear channel in that sense but I've come to see that there's immense information and huge numbers of people who feel a connection to Mary and I actually at this point I see Mary as what I would consider a group entity 
oh, at a okay. higher dimension. That I think she did incarnate at more than one time, but I think particularly in that lifetime as a particular individual, mm-hmm. but that she's operating in a higher dimension. And in the higher dimensions, people more and more are functioning as group entities. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes uh, when I channel beings, that they'll give the channeled message and say, we this, we that, because mm-hmm. they're speaking as a group. Their level of non-separation has progressed to a, a whole different degree than we're familiar with at this level. Interesting. Committees. <laughs> <laughs> Soul groups. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you know, we are groups too, even on the human level, but we don't quite see it as clearly because the, 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 the duality is so dominant. But there are, you know, there are collective clusters of of like-minded people and even a, like a city has its own collective consciousness and a country and and you know and a, a continent and there are all sorts of you know degrees of organization right. uh, and you know and going microscopically i mean we're a committee i mean we're all you know trillion cells and all these other little things going on which in and of themselves are autonomous but taken to collectively and cooperatively form a a human being and then there are interactions you have, people that you meet where you feel this instant connection with, this, you know, like their family, you know them or you resonate with them. I believe that's a, a sign that this is someone that at a deeper level you have this soul connection and you're coming from a higher level grouping. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Michael Newton, who wrote Destiny of Souls, even said that you know some souls might actually be incarnate in multiple places at the same time, the same soul. You know, like I might be living in Canada and, and here also. Mm-hmm. Um, but who knows? Interesting, Interesting to speculate. Now you mentioned that you know you're channeling others as well as Mary. I'm not very tuned into this whole channeling world, but uh, it'd be interesting to take a survey and see how many different entities are coming through and whether there's predominance of the feminine now or you hear people mm-hmm. channeling Saint Germain and all and you know again I take it all with a slight grain of salt and half of the people could be just making it up but um, who who else are you channeling and do you have a, a kind of a, a, a more of a global view now as to what's happening in this whole realm um, worldwide Right. Well, what happened was after this month-long period where I got these messages from Mary, it changed me, and suddenly I was able to channel other beings and have other beings come through, which I never had before. And again, I was very, you know, this was, I was like a baby. This was so new to me, and I tested it first with just, you know, friends or whatever and see if this was real, and then I started having groups and inviting people to come and started channeling and now I do that regularly Hmm. and I have what I call my holy family there are five beings that I Mm -hmm. feel personally most connected to and these are Archangel Michael Mm -hmm. Mother Mary the goddess Isis and Yeshua and Mary Magdalene Hmm. and those are my personal ones that I feel I'm closest to and you're certain that that's who they are and there's not a doubt in your mind that, that, yes. that this one is this and this one is that. Absolutely. And when they come through, their energies are so different. It's mm-hmm. very clear. And then also, I sometimes have other beings come through. I've had all kinds of beings come through. And in my case, they're always ascended beings. You know, some people who channel will contact your deceased relatives or something like that. Right. I, I don't do that. I've never done that. Um, but I channel these 
ascended high beings that come through, and there are quite a different ones. And most of them I've heard of, but lots of times I know nothing about them. I've just heard the name or something. And sometimes the being will come through, usually it's some angel or other, and they'll say their name, and I've never heard of that being. And when they do come through, are you saying the stuff out loud so that people in your gathering can hear, yeah. or is it sometimes subjective? Just no, I say it out loud and record it, and then I um, transcribe it later. Oh, so there's recordings. Yeah, got a lot of book material. What <laughs> <laughs> do I ever? And most of the time, uh, they get published. Um, I have an online journal that publishes them. I put them in my blog. I get mm -hmm. published in Sedona Journal mm -hmm. of Awakening, and um, so they're out there to read. And, um, oh, I was going to say one other thing. The other thing that opened up for me was um, that I started being able to do Akashic Record readings. Hmm. And the Akashic Record is what's considered at the energy level of the Earth. It's the record of all the souls and all the beings who have ever incarnated. Mm -hmm. And um, it's often likened to a big library and that every soul has their own volume in the library. And so to read the Akashic Records, it's like opening up that volume for that person, which you can only do with their permission. Right. And then it's also a, a form of channeling because you're channeling with their guides of their Akashic Record mm -hmm. and bringing through information, which includes past life information and things like that to help people with their to understand their soul's journey and to um, support them in healing anything that needs healing and moving forward what are their next steps in moving forward on their soul path does anybody ever try to come through that doesn't seem so nice I have never had that experience mm -hmm. I know other people's ha people have and I do do certain things that I think are protective and I think some of it is all the background I've done and the work the spiritual work that I'm only inviting in certain energies that are for the highest good of all. I'm very clear about that, and I've never had any problems at all. And do you ever feel overshadowed or taken over to a greater extent than you would want to be, or are, are you kind of grounded in, in your integrity and just this process is taking place but without pushing you off into a corner? Well, first of all, it's always by choice. It never mm -hmm. happens like suddenly I'm taken over and I was surprised. Mm -hmm. I always have to accept and allow it. So I'm always at choice, and I can always end it at any time. And when I'm channeling, it's like I'm in a light trance. I am aware of what's happening around, but I'm not focusing on it. And, um, and afterwards, after I channel, I very quickly forget what happened. Yeah. And um, especially for personal readings, I'm very glad about that. I don't want to remember other people's stuff at all. But so you're not totally gone the way, I guess, maybe Edgar Casey was. He went into right. these deep trances. Right, and, that's yeah. deep trance, and I'm in a light trance state. Yeah. And even the channeled readings of higher beings coming through, um, I, pr I pretty quickly forget what happened because I'm really in an altered state. Mm -hmm. And But when I go back and hear the... Um, the tape later, the recording, I'm like, oh, yeah, now I, re I remember that. Oh, yeah. Mm. But but if you asked me what was in there, I wouldn't know without, mm. you know, listening to it with my third-dimensional conscious mind. Yeah. And then some channelers, it would appear, you know, undergo some deleterious influence, like I, I believe, what's that woman's name, Jane Roberts or something that channeled the Seth material. Mm -hmm. I think that really took a toll on her health and everything. So you're not noticing any kind of... Um, not at all. No. As a matter of fact, I feel like I, it's a gift. I get uh -huh. this infusion of light and Energized, higher frequency. Yeah. yeah. 
that yeah. it's wonderful. So I don't feel anything. I think a point that bears place. repeating with regard to what we've just been talking about, and this is an analogy that Maharishi Mahesh Yogi always used to use. He said, you know, life is like a big territory, and in this territory there are all kinds of things you could explore, you know, diamond mines and gold mines and silver mines and whatnot. You could go explore those. But if you don't capture the fort first that commands the territory, then you're going to be kind of in a dicey situation exploring all this stuff. First of all, you won't even own the whole territory, but secondly, you'll always be in jeopardy of something if you're you know, exploring into something that doesn't really belong to you. So he advocated capturing the fort, which by which he meant you know, self-realization or enlightenment or... Consciousness. You know, consciousness, yeah. awakening. Yeah. And so, you know, you've explained to us in, in the whole unfolding of your story that that was the course of events for you. You weren't even interested in this stuff in, uh, <laughs> until... And, and, and you didn't seek it out. It kind of came to you once the foundation had been established. Right, exactly. Yeah. So... Um, you also spoke earlier of these twelve dimensions, and uh, could you touch upon those a little bit and kind of give when you have say you know new age coming in and all um, presumably that means the kind of unfoldment of these higher dimensions on earth or or not let me know what you say but um, what what do you envision the new age being what kind of time scale are we talking about, and you know what what are these dimensions <laughs> yeah. Um, and first of all, I want to start by saying that this is my map that I use, and other people have different maps. Mm -hmm. And some people, I have 12 dimensions in mine, some people have 24 dimensions in theirs. And so mm -hmm. when you hear somebody say the fourth dimension or the fifth dimension, they're not always talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. But I think fundamentally the progression that most people are seeing is the same course that we're talking about, but different people see different you know divisions within that different steps that we're making so that being said i do see that this spiritual evolution into a new age is a transition into what i call the fourth dimension and i talked a little bit about that earlier about it being like the dream state some of the qualities of it are that um, it is very emotionally based and less physically based and because of that this emotional mastery becomes more important and it's one of the reasons why it's a very why I think Mary Magdalene is focusing on it in addition to the fact that it's holding us back once you get in the fourth dimension your emotional frequency is going to determine the kind of experience you have and um, if you're not strong enough to hold a high enough frequency you're probably going to take yourself out of the fourth dimension, just the way we try to wake ourselves up from a nightmare because we don't want to be there. Mm. So, And we'll probably come back into the third dimension to do more work, to gain that emotional mastery. So that's one of the aspects of the fourth dimension. Um, things manifest instantly in the fourth dimension. And this is one of the hallmarks. You know, people, Some people say, oh, we're already in the fourth dimension, we're already in the fifth dimension. I'm like, oh, okay, are you manifesting everything immediately <laughs> in your world? <laughs> By my definition, that's part of the fourth dimension. And it has Well, obviously, the you know, Larry King question here would be, are you manifesting everything in your world, Mercedes? And so, so you're saying you're not fully in the fourth dimension yourself yet? Right. Okay. I'm moving into that, and I'm definitely manifesting more and more. And mm -hmm. I see that as, you know, I'm strengthening in that fourth dimensional aspect. But no, I'm not instantly manifesting every thought I have and every feeling that I have. Nor would you want to, probably. <laughs> no, I don't think I'm ready for that. This is one of the great graces of spirit, that I think it protects us from being in a situation before we're ready for it. Right, right. 
So that is another quality that, uh, that I think we'll learn how to work with. And at that point, so much of what we're familiar with at the third dimension, including one of the hallmarks of the third dimension that Mary talks about is the, um, the sense of lack, that there's not enough here. And based on that, that we have to struggle for our survival, for getting the things we want. It takes a lot of hard work. This isn't going to be the case at the fourth dimension because we'll be able to manifest whatever we need. And one of the things that people will manifest is perfect health. Mm-hmm. They'll manifest beautiful bodies, whatever you know you want in terms of your body to be. You manifest longevity. I don't think it's we choose to be there forever, but we will live much, much longer until at some point we're ready to release our physical body and move on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and as a part of that, because we will have abundance at that point, we'll have whatever we need. And, it, and it, I think there's a progression that happens with this immaturity. We start out by really wanting to have the kind of things the way we want, you know, our bodies to be the way we want, uh, the possessions we want or whatever, but we more and more mature into or outgrow that to where we want qualities more. Mm -hmm. And the qualities will become more and more this manifestation of these inner divine qualities of having all these beautiful things that are part of our humanity, of peace, of purpose, of love, of consciousness, of play, joy. Um, inspiration, all of those things will become more and more important to us. Another shift that Mary talks about in, from going from the third dimension to the fourth dimension is that in the third dimension where we're based in this sense of lack, not enoughness, and needing to survive, we tend to get into competition, me versus you. In the fourth dimension, we'll be starting to shift into this consciousness that she calls the consciousness of inclusion where we're more and more acting out of caring for everyone rather than just me or just mine whatever that is so those are some of the hallmarks the features of the fourth dimension that are coming to me right now and the fourth dimension is generally considered a transitional dimension into the fifth dimension and so in relative times I think our time at the fourth dimension will be much shorter than the time that I believe many of us have been involved for lifetime after lifetime at the third dimension. Are you talking about the whole planet or just we as individual souls will kind of move on, go through two other planets if necessary to find a, a one that you know resonates with our dimension? I think the Earth is also moving at least into the fourth dimension. That's mm-hmm. what I believe. And that the Earth is alive, is a living being, and has her consciousness, and that she also is ascending. And this is one of the things that is supporting us at this time, is that um, because the Earth is ascending, that is very much affecting us as humanity and helping us in our transition and also I think it's even a much bigger process than just the earth I actually believe that there it's a universal process that's happening that's very much centered around what's happening at the earth right now but because of this I think many many beings from other places other planets other star systems are first of all very interested in what's happening at the earth right now um, are supporting us from other places and are actually also supporting us by incarnating here and becoming part of this transition. I think this is 
um, that be, many beings outside the earth have more of a conscious awareness of what's happening than we do. Mm. And they're very excited about it and curious about it because on a global, not a global scale, a universal scale or even beyond universal scale, we as human beings represent a pretty low level of manifestation and consciousness. And we are changing at an incredibly fast rate. And I think this is something that has almost never been done on other places. And so because of that, I think many, many beings are fascinated by what's happening right now, that we are transforming so quickly. Do you feel like um, it's, it, it's something that may or may not, um, actually letting the dog in here, that, <laughs> that, that may or may not actually um, pan out, that we could blow ourselves up? or melt the ice caps and drown or whatever? Or do you feel like as insurmountable as some of these problems appear, we're going to surmount them? I absolutely believe we're going to surmount them. And I don't think we would even be allowed to self-destruct at this point. And this is, again, one of those things. This is a belief on my part. And yeah. I'll just state it right out. That's the case. But I strongly believe that what's happening on Earth is, is important beyond the Earth. And that there are uni there's universal help for us right now, and there's actually universal laws that we're not going to be allowed to destroy ourselves, even if we end up, you know, wanting to go that far. Mm -hmm. But I think it's we we've played it out long enough, and we're at the tipping point now. And this tip, we might be at this tipping point for a while. You know, I had great hopes that I would wake up um, on December twenty second, two thousand twelve, and we would have transitioned into the fourth dimension. <laughs> yeah. I was more cynical about that. <laughs> I had serious reservations with that, yeah. with, as to whether that would really happen, but yeah. it uh, diminished my hope that that would right. happen. But no, I think this, is, this could easily be a couple hundred years we're talking about. Right. Again, I hope not. I hope it doesn't take that long, but I think it could. But in ultimate time, that's, that's nothing. Like a blink of yeah, a Yeah, snap of the fingers. Snap of the, nothing, exactly. Right. And I think, so it's all relative, but we, I think we are definitely in this process, and we are going to go through it. It's a birth process, and we're coming out the other end, I strongly believe. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, on the one hand, I, I watched Eckhart Tolle be interviewed by Oprah recently, and, and she said, and she had him give him a bunch of sentences that she wanted him to finish. And one was, I believe, and he, his answer was, in nothing in particular. <laughs> and the reason I thought of that is that we use the word belief a lot in the last few minutes. And on the one hand, I believe everything you're saying. Um, I don't believe it adamantly, because who knows? These are theories. But it resonates. You know, I think it might resonate with a lot of people who are listening. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, the word belief... Um, is often used to refer to things that can't be experienced and and is sometimes taken as you know that's all you're going to get is a belief you're not going to get the experience to substantiate it and um, I feel that anything that is worth believing in can be verified through experience um, either immediately if one has the capacity to do that or over time we'll we'll see these things pan out and you don't really have to believe in them in any kind of you know clinging way um, if they happen they happen and and your belief will be vindicated yes and this sense of having to 
a verify it through experience is a very third dimensional point of view. Mm. Not that it's bad or wrong, but it can be a limit if you're saying that's the only way to accept information. Well, I'm not saying, well, like you're, you've said a whole lot of stuff today that um, is pretty far out there by most people's standards, mm -hmm. but it's your experience, and so that's what I mean. Right. And, right. And, and, and I would suggest that anyone listening actually has the capacity to have the experiences that you've had. It may, may not be their role or their calling. It may not happen in this lifetime or whatever, but if one person can experience something, then at least uh, theoretically, potentially, anyone can experience it if it's a real phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And going back to this idea of these two parts of ourself, which I feel comfortable, you know, referring to as the masculine and the feminine, mm -hmm. the masculine being the transcendent doesn't have belief. That is that absolute space of emptiness, no need for belief mm -hmm. in that realm. The feminine being the imminent manifestation in form, belief is, I think, natural to us as one of our uh, abilities, our you know, qualities that we bring into this realm. And so I think we all have both sides of those within us. We have the part of us that doesn't need belief, doesn't hold on to belief, and you know, belief just isn't a part of it. And then we have that other part that where belief can be very active and play a, a part and, you know, depending on how we relate to it, can be very supportive. Hmm. Yeah. When I say belief, I, I'm always just sort of, it's like, who was it, Thoreau or somebody said, you know, go ahead and build your castles in the air. That's where they belong. Now just put foundations under them. Um, so there's nothing wrong with belief, but it, it, one should always sort of aspire to... Um, you know, I say experiential verification, but I don't mean to sound uh, kind of like overly third dimensional when I say that. <laughs> I, I just mean that, you know, living in, in a conceptual world isn't going to do it for you ultimately. There should, be, right. there should be an experiential, visceral kind of grounding. Right. Yeah. Is this true in your life? Is this showing up as in alignment with whatever you experience in your life? Right. Yeah. Because there are people who spend... The whole, their whole lifetime clinging to beliefs that they haven't really substantiated, you know, through through deeper experience. And <laughs> most yeah. of us, do. yeah, and that most can and such people can become very <laughs> radical or fundamentalist and, and so on when that's their their orientation. But even there can be all sorts of beliefs that you know we took on oftentimes when we were very young. That you know there can be beliefs like this world isn't going to support me, right? Or beliefs like. Um, you know, I can't trust men, or right. whatever it is. You know, yeah. it doesn't have to be that I end up being an international terrorist. I just end up being a normal, <laughs> messed up person. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't think we're going to take the time to talk about all 12 dimensions. Uh, <laughs> that would probably take us a couple more hours. But I guess, you know, needless to say, you know, you see life, you see the universe as having... Uh, you know, in my father's house there are many mansions. You see it as having a great sort of depth and profundity that doesn't ordinarily meet the eye. And, you know, there's a huge realm of possibilities that we have just begun to explore. Right. And one of the reasons that I laid out my map and explained about the dimensions in the book was because it seemed to me that some of what Mary was bringing forth wouldn't make sense if people didn't have that contextualization. So it mm -hmm. seemed necessary as a foundation and a container 
for what she was bringing forth, where she was talking about everything from mother, father, God, and what that meant, and how that came to be, down into you know talking about the higher dimensions, and especially referencing the fourth and fifth dimension. Hmm. Cool. Well, I'll have to finish the book. <laughs> time, you know, time gets away with me uh, every, doing one of these every week and having some book to read. I usually don't get to finish them, but I'm intrigued. So, and hopefully, listeners will be intrigued as well. Well, thank you so much. This has been just wonderful talking with you. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. A lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've we've already pretty much covered in the course of the interview some of the things you have to offer and the things you do with people and so on. And you have a website, obviously, MercedesKirkle.com, K-I-R-K. E-L, and I'll be linking to that from batgap.com. Um, and for, for those listening to one of these interviews for the first time, batgap.com is um, kind of the, the mothership of <laughs> this interview show. There are over 160 um, interviews archived there now, uh, available both in video and in audio. The, the, you can either download the MP3 or you can link to a podcast where you can subscribe and download them all in iTunes. And uh, there's a discussion group there, which gets very lively at times. The last, the week before last, the interview had about 500 posts uh, uh, in the discussion group, and they were quite substantive. People were really sort of writing thoughtful things. So if that kind of thing appeals to you, feel free to participate. There's a donation button, which I rely on to enable me to continue doing this and to, you know, to take care of various expenses, which are explained on a page on the site there. And there's also a email subscription tab. If you click that, you can sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. So thank you, Mercedes. It's really been delightful. Well, thank you. I've greatly enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, thanks to those who are, have been listening or watching, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>